Why is it so hard to think about freedom? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jason Kuznicki. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Jason Kuznicki. Jason is the editor-in-chief at Tech Freedom. Before joining Tech Freedom, he served as a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and the editor of Cato Books and the online debate journal Cato Unbound. Previously, Jason was also an assistant editor of the Encyclopedia of Libertarianism, and one of his main interests is the intersection of government and technology, and he also published a book about that topic called Technology and the End of Authority, What is Government For? We actually previously recorded an episode about that together as well, and I encourage you to check that out too. Jason, welcome to The Curious Task. Welcome back, actually, I should say. It's been a little while, but this is not your first time. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's great to have you back on. So, Jason, we base each episode on a theme and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, why is it so hard to think about freedom? And it will be mostly based on your essay, uh, The Domus Mindset, The Origins of Civilization, The Ruling Class, and Why It's So Hard to Think About Freedom. So we'll explore it that way. But before we can understand the Domus Mindset, which is what you're talking about in your essay, we need to understand the Domus Complex. And before we need to understand that, we need to know what a domus is. So let's start from there, Jason. Take us from the top. What's a domus? What does this term mean? What's it referring to? And then we'll get into how it's applied to some of these interesting concepts here. Okay, so a, uh, a domus is, domus is the Latin word for a household. And the household to ancient Romans was a much bigger affair than uh, just a nuclear family as it might be today, or, uh, or even just an extended family as it is in many households today. Uh, a domus was an extended family plus all of the agricultural enterprise that it was undertaking, plus all of the enslaved people that were kept there, plus all of the animals who were also chattels. Uh, it was a, a big uh, undertaking, and uh, it has a history. And uh, we find variations on it in, uh, in many, many different uh, cultures throughout, uh, throughout all of human history, really, both uh, in Europe and in many other parts of the world. And uh, one of one of the really salient features of the domus that is usually much, much attenuated or or absent in a present day household is that the domus is really hierarchical and regimented. We we might be still significantly paternalistic today, but uh, we do not, for example, begin our theory of the family with the idea that the father has the right to kill anyone he wants, right? which is how it was, at least during some periods of Roman history. So uh, we have, we have moved away from a setup that was in various ways uh, omnipresent in the history of of uh, Western civilization at the minimum, and in fact, also present in many other parts of the world. We've moved away from that. And uh, I would argue toward a much more egalitarian and also freer set of social arrangements. And this is very important because 
uh, a lot of our cultural uh, learning, a lot of the assumptions that are made in our uh, myths, a lot of our religion, a lot of our folklore is in fact implicitly or explicitly set in the world of the Domus. It is still set in a very hierarchical, very stratified, uh, very militaristic uh, type of world, and uh, one in which uh, which uh, things that uh, we would call freedom are substantially absent. Right, and that's a great lead into talking about exactly what we're talking to, to spend a bunch of time on today, which is the Domus mindset. But before we get there, I just want to, especially for those who aren't familiar with it or haven't uh, seen your essay, which we definitely recommend people go read. We'll put that in the episode notes, so everyone go check out that essay. But um, you, you do refer, before you get to the Domus mindset and further discussion in your essay, to James C. Scott's Domus complex. C- can you actually take some time to explain what that means? I found that very interesting myself. Uh, Yeah, James C. Scott has this excellent book called Against the Grain, which is an attempt to sort of summarize, to synthesize a lot of recent work in archaeology and uh, archaeology going back much before the Romans. Uh, We're talking about ancient Sumer here. Uh, And uh, he looks at the material conditions of the first uh, you know, sort of uh, agricultural proto-states that were uh, groups of sedentary individuals practicing agriculture uh, centered on a walled city, usually uh, very hierarchical, again, uh, very unfree, and uh, essentially, essentially, they were slave labor camps where individuals or individuals who had been captured or the descendants of individuals had, who had been captured formed an enslaved working class. And the individuals who had captured them or their descendants formed a ruling class, which was still substantially militaristic and uh, extractive in nature. They got their wealth from taking it. Right. And I guess this is what you mean when you say some of the earliest quote-unquote civilizations look more like prison camps than anything, not necessarily bustling metropolises where uh, free trade and liberalism was happening, right? Certainly not, yeah. They, they were, they were uh, militaristic, enslaved labor installations that were perpetually at war with their similars. They were perpetually at war with similar states and empires that they were, they were organized on what were to us basically the same types of principles. And uh, they featured really three uh, fundamental uh, features. Yeah. They have, they have, slaves at the bottom who are working the fields, uh, producing what manufactured goods do exist, and uh, they have very, very little freedom. There is a uh, military class, which is uh, sometimes conscripted, but sometimes uh, sometimes, uh, a nobility, and there is uh, a ruling slash priestly class, which is uh, 
above them and purportedly has uh, some sort of relationship with the gods that legitimizes their power. Right. And so, so I found this actually point in your essay particularly interesting because sometimes in, um, in uh, you know, I guess sometimes classical liberal, libertarian, almost like mythology, if you will, there's sort of like this discussion that's that's passed over, which is, you know, uh, there was hunter gathering, everything was sort of, uh, you know, survival uh, and and it was essentially crap life and then once we get sort of the the beginnings of civilization that's where we get sort of the the seeds if you will things that'll eventually sprout into you know skip ahead a few hundred years like sort of the, the bedrock of, of liberalism and basically just things get better when you start having civilization is the point but but you made a, the point sort of in your essay that if, if you compare at least the earliest civilizations that you just described to what was happening in the hunter gathering side it seems the seems that the hunter gatherers at the time have had the better end of the stick at least when it comes to their contemporary civilizations uh that they would have seen if they went to them which were more like those prison camps like you were talking about i found that part of the essay quite interesting yeah scott makes the the hunter gatherers uh look pretty good by contrast and i i think that that's a useful corrective to uh a lot of what we have seen about them. Now, it's difficult to say uh, simply that they had it better. There is a great deal of evidence that hunter-gatherer societies have generally been quite violent. There's a great deal of evidence for that. What they did not do, though, was to practice mass enslavement. There was not a uh, slave-taking society on the scale that we see in early civilization. Uh, that is that is a new thing. And likewise, uh, the people who were living in the first sedentary agricultural societies generally were much less healthy. There are, is more evidence of parasitism. They did not grow as tall, which indicates that their nutrition was poorer. Uh, there are various ways that archaeologists have have quantified evidence left in in you know, the physical record that show that uh, that in some ways, not in all, in some ways, civilization in its first phase was really quite bleak. Right, and and from a, from a sort of a, a political economic perspective, and I and I intend to connect this back up to sort of our, the the domus mindset again, because I think this part's very interesting too. You said this sort of sedentary societies, essentially, if I read read what you were saying correctly, like the, the whole thing became like a self perpetuating cycle, right? You had enslaved people, or at least you know some form of at the time, you know, the lower classes, people working that needed to, uh, you know, till the land, grow things, feed the army, the army would go conquer people, the high priests and the, the higher end rankings in society at that time needed to direct people. Uh, when there was famine, we either or like problems with the crops or whatever, we need to go conquer people or figure things out. And like, so basically, it's like, it's sort of like this, this sort of wheel that just like perpetuates itself in these sedentary societies. Whereas I think you had a sentence that said that if there was a food shortage, the hunter gatherers would just move. So I thought that was kind of funny. I chuckled when I read that contrast. Yes, yes. Hunter-gatherers, one of the great things about their uh, way of life is that they're mobile. And uh, if the environment in one place is not doing well by them, they can go elsewhere. Uh, If you are committed to a walled city-state, though, you can't really move. Uh, You are dependent on the walls for your security. You are dependent on the fields for your food. And you may not know how to be a hunter-gatherer anymore. You know how to uh, work 
uh, a field, you know, you know about plowing, you know about irrigation maybe, and those are useful skills, but they also make you sedentary. And uh, it does very much become a kind of trap because if uh, you imagine a, a band of hunter-gatherers, uh, they are faced with the choice of whether to uh, throw their lot in with uh, the would-be conquerors or to move further away, eventually they're going to run out of land that is uh, useful for their purposes. They are uh, almost certainly also going to be weaker. They are not going to be able to, uh, to put together as large or as organized a, an army as one that has for its base uh, agricultural labor and extractive taxation. Uh, that kind of setup can produce a much larger military than hunter-gatherers can. So uh, it, is a, it is a more secure option. It is a more secure uh, you know, space to be in in the, the, the payoff matrix, I guess, than, uh, than hunter-gathering, but that doesn't necessarily mean that anyone in the, in the, uh, the society is going to be uh, happier or, or healthier or freer. Right. And, and so let's now let's shift over to the domus mindset itself. I mean, you touched on it before I was asked, as I was asking you some general questions there, you talked about a lot of our skipping to today, modern thinking, the way we think about things, our folklore, it's all sort of part of this overall domus mind mindset. Um, so, so why don't you connect that up for us and elaborate a little further on, on what exactly you mean by that? How, how, how do a lot of us have this mindset without even knowing it? What, what are you really talking about there? Uh, sure. Uh, so uh, James C. Scott is uh, doing very uh, material history. He's interested in what people ate and in how they fought and in you know, what their cities were built out of and, and, and questions like that. And that's really, really useful. But I wanted to look at, at least in essay form, at least in embryonic form, what are the cultural dimensions of these uh, these physical arrangements? What are the marks that this kind of enculturation would would produce? So we we don't live solely by material objects. We live in a world of ideas too. Right. And uh, so I, I began I began asking about that and and trying to come up with with answers of it about it and one of the places is is absolutely in religion as i note in the essay baal the uh the semitic word for lord could mean a god and it does very certainly mean a god in uh hebrew scriptures but it also means a landlord uh, there are lords in the heavens and there are lords on the earth, as I say in the essay, and uh, they are likened to one another, even in the terminology, even in the words that are used for them. And uh, we can see a kind of echo of this in uh, even relatively recent political thinking. So in the 17th century, 
absolutist monarchs were great fans of this idea called the great chain of being. In the great chain of being, God stands at the very top of the hierarchy and below him are the angels and just a bit below the angels, but not very much. There are the kings of this earth who are answerable only to God and uh, who occupy a very, very high station in the hierarchy. And the rest of us, of course, we might be noblemen, we might be commoners, uh, but we are well below them. Everyone has their place. Your place is fixed. You're not allowed to move, by the way. The law says you must not, except for very specific purposes and with permission. Uh, everyone has both a social station and a physical station. And in a good society, those line up and they are not in question. And uh, that is something that seems to be a, a very common uh, cultural uh, formation or cultural uh, uh, resonance from the original very ancient domus mindset that has just continued and continued down through the centuries. Uh, our fears about immigration today, I think, are, are significantly driven by the idea that when people come to our, our nation or to our territory from elsewhere, right. they must be kind of like an invading army. We, right. hear, we hear people on the right saying this all the time. And uh, certainly it's possible for me to imagine an invading army coming from uh, somewhere else in the world. I can, I can imagine that. But I don't think that the people who come to the United States for work are like an invading army. I think they're coming here for work. And that's, to me, a, a completely different purpose. You know, when, when someone comes to the United States for work, they enrich themselves and they leave us better off too. So uh, I don't see that as analogous, but there is that, there is that enduring fear, I would say, that comes to us in part from, uh, from the Domus mindset. Interesting. And pushing it a little further into more modern examples or things that you, you could observe, Jason, of, of today's Domus mindset, I'm just going to just pull a quote here for discussion from your essay. So you said, one practical teaching of the Domus mindset is that nearly everyone must remain in their geographic, social and intellectual places for the whole thing to work, the whole thing being, you know, the world. And the, then, and the then set up, yes. Yeah. And then you go on to say the Domus mindset valorizes and tends strongly towards stasis. Is this sort of another way of saying that everyone in their own way is is sort of uh, like like a, a conservative? And I don't mean a conservative in the political sense. I mean, people are are sort of, you know, they might like, uh, you know, most people might be OK with some change throughout their life, but not too much. They usually like things in their place and things in their station. Is it is that sort of the idea here that 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 domus mindset, you know, even if someone wants to switch a career or be promoted at their job, you know, like it's not like there's no change and everyone stays as an apprentice, for example, for the rest of their life. But but do people generally like things in their general categories and places? Is this the idea that we're all a little conservative to some degree? Well, I think obviously we are. Uh, even someone who's quite radical uh, would still commonly observe a lot of social conventions. You know, Marx still put shoes on and Mao was a big believer in traditional Chinese medicine, and you know, for example. But uh, those are... Uh, not the reasons we identify them as radicals. 
uh, yeah, everyone does though have have some tendency towards stasis. Uh, really though, the reason that I wrote that particular sentence, the domus mindset valorizes and tends strongly towards stasis, is that I'm I'm uh, alluding very distantly to the other great influence on this essay besides James C. Scott, and that is Virginia Pastrell and her book, The Future and Its Enemies. And in that book, she contrasts two different uh, kinds of, of thinking about the future. Uh, one of them valorizes stasis and uh, looks forward to a future where everything is planned out and all the questions are settled and uh, it's uh, a, a kind of utopian society in which all of the rough edges are smoothed out and everything is perfectly planned. Uh, and the other kind of mindset, which she very much prefers, is a dynamist mindset, one in which uh, the future is open-ended and we don't actually know how things are going to turn out and no one is in charge and that is amazing. And uh, I've I've lived with the ideas of the future and its enemies uh, ever since the book came out in I think it was 1998. I I have I have always appreciated this book and I recommend it very strongly to everyone. But I was always left with this question about the book, which was why stasis? Why is it that we uh, anticipate or frequently anticipate a future of stasis, a future in which all of the loose ends have been tucked away and uh, we have managed to plan everything uh, and it's all centralized and it's all it's all run in this sort of perfectly orderly way. And I, I, I am offering this essay as a... Uh, bit of what would have to be a much larger answer. Uh, we look forward to a future of stasis when we do, because we have been in many ways, the products of a series of cultures that depended on stasis. We depend on the continued function of the domus in order to supply us with bread, in order to supply us with security. And uh, more people have lived in something domus-like than have lived in liberal, egalitarian, property-owning, democratic societies where everyone has at least roughly equal rights. Uh, that latter formation, the, the formation of liberal democracy, is new, it is fragile, it is amazing, but it is something that we are still not fully used to. It is something that... Uh, our culture and our myths and uh, our religions even uh, point us, uh, you know, th those things point us towards stasis. Right. But I, I, but on that note, though, um, you're obviously you're absolutely correct. I mean, like, you know, most people uh, throughout history uh, have not lived in something any and uh, under or with anything like a liberal democratic system. And a lot of people do today. And obviously, that, that's better than many, many alternatives. However, I, if I remember correctly, you even note in the essay that in, in some ways, one way of looking at the liberal democratic system is that it sort of takes place of uh, the 
you know, the Lord and like the dome is set up really like, you know, there is there. What I interpreted that from that is that there is sort of a danger as well of the liberal democratic system itself becoming a form of stasis. if We're not serious about dynamism. Yes, absolutely. When uh, we find ourselves no longer experiencing freedom under liberal democracy, when we find ourselves experiencing the tyranny of the majority, it's commonly in the service of stasist values, values of of uh, traditionalism, of uh, trying to keep people in their places, trying to keep new ideas from uh, bursting out, uh, trying to keep people to traditional ways of living. Uh, much more often, I think, than someone's come up with a crazy new scheme to revolutionize how we eat. Uh, maybe you're afraid of that. I don't know, but uh, I'm, I'm not nearly as afraid of that as I am afraid of, of uh, uh, attacks on, uh, for example, birth control or uh, the right to choose an abortion uh, when a woman wants to. Uh, those are, I would say, examples of much more traditionalist journeys of the majority that that we are we are uh, in danger of, at least in some some parts of the United States, certainly not in all. Right. And and continuing sort of in the same vein, a little bit different here, but but in parallel, one thing that I liked about your essay, of course, is that it brings in sort of the dimensions of thinking about, uh, you know, culture, like, you know, dynamism versus uh, stasis. It also like, you know, thinks about more about class and power dynamics and how we think about it. It sort of got me thinking about contrasting what 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 is often talked about uh, and correctly so in many classical liberal and libertarian circles about you know the the uh, the amazing economic and technological progress that has happened you know from say like you know uh you know, the, the late 1700s, early 1800s on, on through now. And this is obviously true. I mean, there's been an explosion of, of wealth. There's been explosions of technological progress and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, there is the, the good old uh, anarchist argument that basically says throughout this, we still do have sort of, they don't use this word often, but the, the, the Adomus sort of mentality and problem where in many cases, not all, it might be a rough around the edges argument, but you still ultimately have this sort of class system where you have the stationary bandits in the state and people that extract from others and oligarchs in society and so on. To me, it seems like, although you don't say it directly in this essay, it's it's lending a lot of credence to that sort of style of, of thinking where we need to bring in more of that class and power dynamic arrangement um, layer into our thinking rather than just, oh, you know, look at all the technological progress if one is a liberal, for example. Well, technological progress has produced this this amazing surplus of wealth in the modern world compared to where we used to be. And that's enabled a lot of different things. One is that we do, in fact, have much stronger governance institutions today. States can do a lot right. more to one another and to their citizens, uh, to the people uh, whom they govern. But uh, we also have a, a great deal more capacity for resistance. Uh, the the uh, field of battle has been extended in both directions. Uh, we, uh, we have enough money, many of us, that we can do things like decide to move to uh, a new place if it suits us better. Uh, and uh, uh, purchasing or renting a room of one's own 
as a, a symbol of, of freedom is, is not at all wrong. That is something to be lauded about our wealth. And uh, that has tended very strongly to erode uh, traditional constraints on, on women and on uh, many different minorities, uh, which I think is great. I would like that to keep, keep going. I would like everyone to be wealthy enough that they can uh, bargain around or make irrelevant the social constraints that held them into hierarchical places in society. I think right. that would be a much better a much better place than uh, everyone belongs to a family, the head of the family is in charge, everyone else has to obey his authority. Uh, that kind of a setup made sense when you were constantly under external threat and when uh, you were also constantly under the threat of not having enough to eat. Right. And uh, we are not that way anymore. We figured out how to solve those problems much more effectively. Right. And actually, before I jump into a couple of follow-ups to that, I, I think that's an excellent place to take our break. So, so we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jason Kuznicki today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including... Travis Smith, John Robson, and Daniel Beer. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jason Kuznicki today. So, Jason, I think the first half was great. We talked about the concept of the domus, the domus mindset, the domus complex, and we were getting your thoughts on where things, what the domus mindset is and how it applies to us uh, and how we're sort of entrenched in it, if you will, and uh, how that sort of affects our, our thinking today. Um, one thing I wanted to follow up on, though, is that you, this is, so this is very interesting that you said right before the break is that you said, you know, I brought up the point that, um, you know, we still do live with class and power dynamics today that are very troubling and are very domus like, if you will. You brought up the point that that the battlefield sort of goes both ways, that we're at the point now where generally speaking in society we have the kinds of time and, and wealth and so on and so forth where we, we can effectively and i don't want to put words in your mouth but what i what i pulled from that is um, you know fight the domus mindset or break free through the domus if you will but um but but that's i guess sort of a, a circular thing like it's a bit hard to do right because it, it seems that another point in your essay is that we're kind of bad about thinking about freedom so is, is this the the ultimate hindrance then like i mean if we have the tools and the battlefield go, goes both ways uh, as you were saying is, is one of our last barriers here that that we're just not that good about thinking and talking about freedom in, in a different way it is yes we have uh we have a lot of holdovers from from older ways of thinking uh that that uh, we still live with and we still think with and uh, an example that I would would use here is that uh, there's a strong tendency to uh, conceptualize liberty as as collective. Uh, the Roman idea of liberty was non-domination by foreigners, which right. uh, that's that's a a consistent idea. It's not 
self-referential. It's not, uh, you know, otherwise, I guess, philosophically damaged, but it is not individual. It is not an individual idea of liberty. And this is something that uh, Benjamin Constant pointed out in his justly celebrated liberty of the ancients compared with that of the moderns. Modern liberty concerns the individual's non-domination by the state, which is something that uh, we're still working on, obviously, uh, right. but it is not it is not the capacity to actively participate in government such that we will not be dominated by others. That was what the Romans commonly meant by liberty. And so uh, you could be, for example, the daughter of a prominent Roman senator and describe yourself as free, although in your society, you certainly were not. You were under the dominion of your father and as a woman, your roles in society were very tightly circumscribed. You had very little of what we would call the individual liberty that is properly due to a woman or indeed to anyone in a, a modern liberal democracy where individuals have rights and uh, not the heads of household uh, you know, standing over them and telling them what they may and may not do. Right. And and one key point, another another key point or key, I guess, to understanding the way you think about the Domus mindset is, is, is your point that humans want phenomena, events and so on to be linked to conscious human activity or a human being or persona. Uh, you know, the idea that it's hard for us to think about, you know, I guess, m- macro results or, or things in, in systems of whatever it is, political economy or whatever it is in the abstract, essentially spontaneous order in some ways, too. C- can you explain this a little further? Because I, f- I found this very interesting. I think it relates to almost everything we talked about here, this idea that the domus mindset always wants us to link things to like a, a persona, like if, if I got yes, correctly. Yes, the, the, the tradition of spontaneous order is relatively new. And uh, the idea that social phenomena might be emergent, not from one entity's authorship, but from the uncoordinated decisions of, of uh, you know, dozens or even millions of people, uh, that is sort of hard to put into... Uh, the narrative of the Domus. In the the narrative of the Domus, the Lord is your protector. The Lord is the provider of bread. Uh, There are reasons why this sounds like the Lord's Prayer, by the way. Uh, And you are in a personal relationship with the one who is ordering your society insofar as you experience it. Uh, Whether you are that person's son and heir or whether you are that person's slave you at least uh, are in a personal relationship with your Lord. And that's a thing that uh, I, you know, I talk about in the essay as being a part of our sort of, uh, uh, our, our force structure of understanding almost. You know, this is a, a toolkit that we bring to, to thinking about almost everything, well, who's in charge? Right. Someone's in charge, someone made it this way. Why does inflation happen? It must be a cabal of powerful bankers who have interfered with what otherwise would be. Well, no, that's a a very economically unsophisticated way of thinking about it. It does not consider emergent effects. It does not consider the uh, the ways in which uh, 
an impersonal force like an increase in the supply of money might actually cause inflation. Now, under uh, the current economic regime in the United States, the supply of money is actually governed, but uh, but the propagation of of that supply throughout the economy and the ways that it manifests in price increases here and not there that very much is still uh, spontaneous and uh, not so easily predicted. And certainly, it's not the product of bankers deciding that they want gasoline to be expensive or the president or whoever. It's not that, but we want it to be that. We want to think in those terms. Uh, we want what uh, what Michael Shermer has called agenticity. Right. Uh, the idea that there is someone who's in charge makes a problem easier to think about. It makes it feel like we also have perhaps some agency. Uh, like we could uh, be players in the story after all someone else is. And someone else made it this way so people can unmake it. But the trouble is that a, a system of spontaneous order doesn't always extend individual agency to people. I can't, I can't just say, well, I think eggs are too expensive. And so uh, uh, I'm going to change the price of eggs. Well, you know, if you're a merchant and you do that, then you'll find yourself completely sold out. And uh, you know, down the street, some uh, egg scalper will be reselling your product. Right, and by the way, reaping the profit. So uh, uh, you know, we aren't we aren't always. In fact, we are almost never price makers. We are usually price takers. Mm-hmm. And and tying that back to something you said before, like this idea that you know, for example, some people might view like you know a, a, a large group of immigrants or new people to a certain country or area, province, state, whatever, as sort of like quote unquote an invading army. Do you think this is sort of like an extension of what you're talking about there? Is that, you know, if, if, if one loses their job or uh, or one feels some sort of economic change or the skill that they have is no longer applicable, whatever it is, it, it's easier for a politician, say, to come in and basically say, it's those people over there ruining the domus that are the problem, not necessarily, like you said, like an increase in the money supply or the fact there's just technological change. That means, you know, running a Xerox copier is not like the peak peak technological skill anymore and that that sort of thing is is this idea whether it's immigrants or uh you know um who, whoever else pinning it on someone also kind of the way politicians exploit this basically they basically turn Absolutely. around and say someone's ruining Absolutely. the domus the uh the uh domus mindset takes us directly to some of the really ugliest parts of uh far-right anti-immigrant ideology uh the great replacement uh, idea that uh, uh, certain powerful groups in in the United States, whether it's a cabal of liberals or a cabal of Jews, uh, they are the ones who are importing uh, these other people, these foreigners, to replace white Americans. Uh, this is a, a, a conspiracy theory. It is nonsense. But it has agenticity to it. It has it has a, someone who's in charge who is doing it, who is an enemy, and and that makes it appealing as a narrative. And really, what's happening is that we in the United States and our very powerful economy, we are generating economic opportunities for people elsewhere in the world, and those people have figured out 
that they can benefit by coming here. They're not coming here because Mm -hmm. they were told to. They're coming here because they're getting paid for it. And uh, if our economy takes a downturn, you can actually see this in, uh, in immigration statistics. Illegal migrations decline. Mm-hmm. They, they, they get fewer because there's less economic opportunity. Now, obviously, we don't want that. We don't want to you know, crash the economy to keep immigrants out. Uh, I would say that uh, that we should welcome them and welcome their productivity and and welcome the economic dynamism that they bring and uh, and uh, see that as a sign that we are uh, doing something right. That that uh, uh, when people view the United States as a as a uh, an economically favorable place, that's uh, that's a, a gold star in our lapel. You know, we should be proud of that. Mm-hmm. And as far as far as the domus mindset itself is just interesting. Don't, like, do you think then, at least modern speaking, that like again, you're you're talking about some of the ugliest parts of the extreme right and that kind of mindset. So I'll just take it further. Do you think then is one way to think about it that sort of like fascism is basically like the ultimate end of the domus mindset? I mean, you have a society and an economy working together, sort of like the hands and arms of a body, and everyone has their role within this sort of walled garden where everything's supposed to be great, and everyone outside is as the outsider is is ruining it, or you know, it's, et cetera. Is, is that sort of the ultimate end of that that domus mindset where we all belong to this sort of one system and have our role? Yeah, it it, it points from the sort of. Uh, Stasism of the distant past to the stasism of of modernity or of uh, of uh, the planned community of the future, the uh, national socialism that funnels benefits at the racially pure so-called is uh, similar to the uh, Roman state that funneled benefits at citizens while oppressing everyone else. Uh, there is a there is a thread through history of that kind of stasism that someone at the top is going to make things right for us, and we in our closed community will enjoy the benefits of it, and uh, we will enjoy the benefits in part, uh, or in fact substantially, by keeping others out. Right, and and when it comes to like liberal thinking, I mean here in like the classical traditional like lowercase l liberal sort of sense you do note and it obviously and we've established that throughout our conversation as well that that liberalism itself you know dynamism trade interdependence without tyranny and control etc it's sort of hard to reconcile with the domus mindset and, and that's actually a good thing is that the reason and i'm going to swing us from the extreme right now over to maybe the capital p progressive or some issues on the quote-unquote left is that the reason as well the domus mindset that we have so many what i what i would call sort of superficial liberals you know those who will counter you know uh the extreme right and by talking about liberal democracy uh and, and talking about you know you know for example just like an anti-trump sentiment but they ultimately on in a different way also want either an economic oligarchy or, you know, government going after the greedy grocery CEO or, or, or whatever else it is. It seems like there's also a superficial liberal problem with the domus mindset on the other side as well. Well, yes, we should definitely not imagine that the domus mindset only lives on the right. Uh, there is a kind of progressivism that views uh, the governance of, of, uh, the polity as a, a kind of closed system and a kind of uh, 
sort of output maximization game to be played by by those of us who are are in the ruling class and uh, that uh, the economy is for the government to manage and we can uh, try to maximize it and that's that's what we ought to be doing and uh, uh, yes a lot of the a lot of the uh, sort of uh, a lot of a lot of uh, what's mentioned in what's discussed in the future and its enemies is about that kind of of uh, left progressive uh, central planning tendency, which is uh, really aimed at stasis. It might appear like it's new. It might appear high tech and uh, and you know, by its own terms progressive, but what it's aiming at is a kind of closed system. And uh, that is dangerous. That is uh, something we ought not to want to be locked into. Absolutely. Now, the real, the real uh, salient political division uh, that uh, Virginia Pastrell talks about in that book is not between left and right. It's between dynamism and stasis. And the uh, the party of stasis is not found just on the left or just on the right. It's it's emphatically both. Mm-hmm. And another another key to the Domus mindset that I pulled out of the essay as well is that you know there's there's issues around us that affect us, but obviously as far as like um you know and we we talked about a lot of forward looking um you know uh, things, but as far as like a. Uh, the you know the way we think about the past as well it seems that that's also steeped in the nomus mindset like even in the way we tell sort of like uh our, you know we have cultural folklore and our mental models of things and so on and so forth i think in your essay as well if i remember correctly you sort of uh, poked fun at like you know generically speaking these sort of old tales of you know uh you know the, these parables or morality tales where it's so you know so and so left the city and you know they got adventurous and basically got into trouble they came back and everything was okay sort of thing like it, it, i didn't really think of it until i sort of read that point in the essay but it seems as well that the way we think about the past or the way we also sort of graph moral lessons into things is also part of the stomus mindset too yeah, we know that a story is over in the West when everyone lives happily ever after and things stop changing. <laughs> right. And and uh, uh, that's, uh, that's, I think, a, a bit of an artifact of uh, how in past societies, when things were going relatively well, that was when they stopped changing because there were really only a, a, a relatively small number of changes that past societies would undergo usually. Uh, it was much more frequent that change was something like an invasion or a famine or a plague. It was never that, or almost never, that change was something like a new technological innovation that gives us more free time or the arrival of mass literacy or the arrival of a vaccine that saves us from a disease. Uh, That type of change is a change that has started arriving more frequently in modernity. But before modernity, change was something terrible, usually. And often the best you could hope for was to carry on as your father and grandfather and great-grandfather had done. Right. And, and carrying forward, I guess, this, I guess, cultural critique sort of train of thought we're on here, too. That That's how people look at things staying the same, the happily ever after. That was a very good summary. That's exactly it. That's why I laughed. Um, but what about the way, and this might 
this might be a little hard to navigate, so I might stumble over it. But it's also interesting, as I thought of the way you put this, too, that the way people think about change as well, even though it might superficially appear to be change, it still seems to be part of the Domus mindset. You know, like when we hear about, like, you know, let's take American history, for example, like, you know, there was periods of change or or, or radical sort of overhaul, you know, of the way, like, you know, governing or the economy work, you know, like, you let's just take, like, you know, the New Deal, for instance, this is often taught to people as sort of like, you know, now someone here has come in and basically uh, we're changing the way we're doing things and, uh, you know, we're offering a New Deal to everybody, um, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So superficially, that might seem like, you know, the, the you know, uh, that people are breaking free of, you know, the oppressive boss or whatever it is and getting a fair deal and a new deal now. But in reality, is that sort of just, again, just sort of the lords, if you will, and the landlords or whoever else, the people higher up in the ladder, just changing the domus rather than breaking free of it. That seems a lot of, now that um, my brain is on the sort of lens that you create in this essay, I'm, I also note that even radical change that's celebrated in history uh, that we often still look back at today as a positive thing is still just really just a modification or change of the domus often. At least that's one thing that I've been thinking about. I'm not sure if you agree. The proponents of the New Deal, they they thought it was great because now we have a more rational direction of the economy. That was right. how they wanted to sell it, that uh, rather than everyone going off and doing their own thing, which purportedly caused the Great Depression, although it didn't, uh, now we have someone in charge. Now we are going to r- rationalize and make regular our competition, and we're only going to let so much happen in the way of change we're going to we're going to keep this regular we're going to control trade we're going to uh now there's uh, 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 uh it, it is a kind of it is a kind of very stasis uh tendency in american in american history absolutely mm-hmm. and to, to round off our conversation here as our time does wind down ultimately you do talk about needing we need a sort of change in cultural folklore the way we think about things our mental models the way we create abstractions and so on in in your own mind what what does that change kind of look like in more simple terms like i you know obviously you know how we go about doing that would actually be to to change our our, our you know uh, mental models that's easier said than done but w- what do those new sort of mental models look like what, what kind of things can people adopt in their head that sort of uh, breaks free of the domus mindset whether whether you know you have it or not well, I, I haven't written that essay yet, and so this is going to be all pretty nebulous. But uh, uh, one uh, one uh, model that I think is helpful and that actually has been written is by uh, my good friend Aaron Ross Powell, who has uh, written an essay about uh, the need for uh kind of uh what what he he draws on he draws on 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 buddhism and the concept of of sympathetic joy uh his essay is titled goodwill sympathetic joy and liberalism's foundations and uh uh he suggests that even if we don't fully understand what's going on in our neighbor's family or with their business or or their hobbies or whatever uh we ought not to regard those as threats, but rather as manifestations of how how great human difference is, that uh, it is amazing that we can find 
we can find happiness in so many different places. And uh, we don't have to be harmonious or in lockstep with them to do that. Uh, it might be that you spend every weekend in pursuit of the perfect barbecued chicken or uh, in pursuit of uh, the best golf game you can play or, or uh, going hiking in, in uh, a woods that you love or, or whatever it might be. And that's really not for me. That's not what I want. But I can still be happy for you and recognize that in a society of, of great individual freedom, we're going to end up with lots and lots of different kinds of life. We're going to see many different uh, practices, not just in our hobbies, but in our, uh, our livelihoods, in our religions, in our uh, family life. And uh, we ought not to regard those as threats because we are, uh, first of all, uh, we're not dependent on, on uh, harmonizing everything into uh, the domus, as it were, for our, our food or our security. Right. So this kind of goes back, so, kind of traces a, a bit of the conversation about like liberal, plur, a liberal style of like pluralism in society and sort of that kind of like, um, you know, accepting that there's a multifaceted society and different kinds of people around you sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, one, one big part of, of doing that is just recognizing that uh, uh, what works for me isn't actually going to work for other people. And uh uh, we understand less about the interior lives of others than uh, we have probably been led to believe. Uh, we, uh, we don't really have as much capacity to judge the individual uh, happiness or well-being of others as, as we, we might imagine. So to, so to round that off, and our, our time is actually winding down here, so I am, I am going to bring us to a formal wrap-up in just a second. But I, I guess really, like, um, like if, if, you know, when it comes to, like, the overall, um, you know, lowercase l, liberal project, if you will, and I, I'd, I'd say you're, you're a part of that for sure from what I gather from your writing and so on and so forth to some degree. So, like, w- would you say that this is actually... Like, you know, now that you're interested in this topic and you've thought more about it and this essay's out and so on and so forth, like you think this domus mindset is really one of, one of the first top agenda items uh, either people should tackle for themselves, but also introduce to other people, it would seem, right? Like this, if you well, can't get I over would, this mentality. I would love it, obviously, if it were, if it were, uh, if it were propagated further, you know, that, that people were thinking about it and talking about it that way, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, every everyone who writes an essay wants it to be successful, obviously, but uh uh, I, I, I wrote it in part because I wanted to try to, uh, to write a really big cultural history. Uh, I'm a product of uh, an academic uh, history training, which tends to write micro histories, uh, the, the history of, of one nunnery between 1850 and 1860 or something like that. Right. Uh, you know, just very tiny little histories of you know, this newspaper that was ephemeral and only published for two years or, or whatever. And, uh, uh, and I've, I've kind of reacted against that. And I've also, also reacted against uh, the idea that history 
always has to be very scrupulously value neutral. It's mm. not value neutral. History is where we go to tell stories. Can we tell stories about history that are simultaneously truthful and that also allow us to think productively about how to improve ourselves? I, I think the answer to that is yes. And, uh, and that's uh, one of the reasons why I've, I've written this and, and the other essays on, on my Substack. I'm, I'm trying to write uh, in a, a sort of conscious uh, response to those, to those uh, tendencies in American academic history. Right. Uh, you would see you would see big histories like the kind that I write in the 18th or the 19th century. Uh, not so much anymore in the 20th century. That that kind of fell away, and uh, that 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 fell out of fashion. But uh, I, I think that there is there is productive work to be done uh, in in uh, a, a history that's not so afraid to to do it in in that direction. Hmm. It's very interesting. And with that, our time actually has pretty much wound down. So uh, I'm going to move us to our formal wrap up then. And, and, and Jason, you might recall that in each episode, I want to make sure that that the guest ultimately has the last word to put a finer point on our exploration of the question and bring everything full circle. So let me ask you to end things off here. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on why it's so hard for us to think about freedom and what we can do about the Domus mindset. And in, in other words, if you want someone to leave here today listening to us with only one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, what would that be that you'd like to leave them with? For the most part, our, our ancestors were sedentary subsistence agriculturalists who uh, paid their taxes because they were terrified of their lords and they were even more terrified of the people who lived in the next valley over. And these are the people who gave us a lot of our cultural assumptions on a, on a really deep level. And uh, that's created a kind of mismatch in, in our lives between received wisdom and how to live productively and happily in modernity, which has a very different set of, of underlying uh, economic and security constraints than ever before. Modernity is weird in history, and most of history looked very different from it. And uh, a lot of modern political culture is simply about the difference between that traditional way of life and its, its political and cultural commitments and those that might be more fit to a more prosperous and more open society of the type that that we increasingly are. Very interesting. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So Jason Kuznicki, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again today. Thank you. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.